Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 158 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday morning. It's March 11th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We are not at the moment socially distancing ourselves. No, you're 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 too close, man. All right, I'll uh, back up. There you go. Okay. Yeah, the Better. sound the sound quality will be harmed. Scoot back in. Well, speaking of sound quality, so I I, I realized belatedly after posting after after my my expert. Uh, producing on the episode last week that I forgot to compress the file into mono. So some some of our listeners noticed that I was coming out of one ear and you're coming out of the other. <laughs> They're like driving along and having us yapping in their ears from either side. Or or if like if one of you if you only had one ear pod AirPod in or if you only or if one oh, of would just drop was broken, out? maybe you just heard Bobby and it was better. <laughs> I doubt that. Um, we should you should uh, phase it so it, you know waves back oh. and forth like some 1970s overproduced effect. I mean you know one of these I I I, I could Audacity is really cool. I'm sure I could do a lot of cool stuff with it, but I also feel like that would take time. It would violate our principle of low production values. I mean, we have we have we have like what three rules on this show, right? One, only do it when it's fun. Two, put no more effort into it than absolutely necessary. Yep. And three, when all else fails, see rules one and two. <laughs> uh, you know, some people say that the president's tweets with the grammatical errors and the weird capitalizations are are actually intentional signals. It's a way of signaling, like, hey, authenticity. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like you or whatever. Um, I think our crappy production values signal authenticity, Steve. It's the equivalent of of, of Trump's tweets. That's where you want to start this episode. I'm, is just, by I'm just trying to fire you up. We're at the beginning of the show, trying to get you started. I'm not fired up. I'm just. I'm just so. I'm so over everything. Well, this. This is a. You know, this season of the show. This season sucks. This season's got some really harsh twists. Um, so today we're gonna bounce across a number of diff- different topics. We're pushing the boundaries of lack of preparation to new heights. Um, we're just gonna touch base on things that come up as we as we go through. I'm sure we'll have something to say about uh, campus closures and quarantines and, and distancing, etc. Why don't we? You want to start off though with some national security law. We, let me. What a crazy idea. Let me. Let me at least uh, answer the mail on some things that have been happening. Why don't we first note that uh, the Ides of March are close upon us, and longtime listeners and, and will know. And so too the season premiere of Westworld. Well, that too, but we got to save Westworld. We got to save it. That, oh, I know. We at least have that to look forward to. But the Ides of March, as we repeatedly note, is uh, the deadline, the current deadline for renewal. Uh, or expiration of three, or if you count them a different way, four provisions that are associated with FISA. That Although is, not not the core of FISA itself. Yeah, right. I mean, well, the, the but me, well, the no, it, it depends, right? It depends on which one not, we're talking about. Not so. original Title One FISA, with the exception of the lone wolf provision. Well, that exception is why I say it depends right, on which fine. one we're talking about. But not like the under, not FISA in its entirety. Yeah, that for sure, okay. right? Like the whole thing doesn't go away. What would go away is one as. I feel bad because I know a lot of people have heard us say this before, but not all have. All the new listeners who are home looking for podcasts all to pass you, time oh, with. Oh, that's true. That's we, might, we might get a surge. Hurricane um, babies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not even going to pick up the thread of that one. It's a thing. It. Oh, I know it's a thing. Um, I, I'm just not going to pick that thread up. Okay. Um, so we've got the roving wiretaps amendment where – like is already the case or was already the case with federal criminal investigations, you could get a wiretap that's keyed to the person, not the device, in a circumstance where there's good reason to believe someone's, say, going through a bag of burner phones. Um, you don't have to keep getting different uh, warrant applications put into place to follow them. That was extended to the FISA system for foreign intelligence wiretaps. Um, that's due to expire. I see no good argument not to renew it, and I don't think that's a flashpoint. Uh, there's 
the lone wolf provision, which goes to the definition of foreign power that's used in FISA Title I, suffice to say that this is a response to the Zacharias Musawi situation prior to 9-11, where the government knew he was from abroad, uh, had really good reason to believe he was involved in an extremist uh uh, Islamic extremism associated with violence, but they couldn't figure out which specific designated or otherwise foreign terrorist organization he might particularly be involved in, and therefore couldn't make a showing that he was an agent of a foreign power. So that gets amended to create a lone wolf sort of individual foreign power category for international terrorism. That's on the chopping block as well. Uh, and then there's Section 215, which once used to be called the library provision, but is really best described as the uh, the, the records subpoena provision. Uh, functions like a subpoena in that it doesn't go through the courts, except that, well, Suffice to say, you don't have to get a, a probable cause showing, but there's basically an ability to demand production of information that a third party may have about somebody, <laughs> including, as it turns out, you could use this uh, for individualized requests for call detail records, some some uh, target of investigations records. Then it gets amended. The way it was originally written prior to the USA Patriot Act in 2001 as of 1998, when they created it, you could go to certain businesses and reflecting the lessons that were associated primarily with the original World Trade Center bombing from 1993, what you could do is you could go to car rental companies and uh, you know uh, travel uh, companies, like so bookings on flights, that sort of thing. A handful of very useful but very limited types of businesses subject to these production orders. Uh, the Patriot Act expanded that so that you could go to any sort of business without narrowing it down with some preconception of who might hold the relevant information. And then also, there's an expansion that lets you go for the records of other people who are still relevant to the investigation, but might not be the one who you think is the agent of a foreign power or the international terrorist. So there are those expansions. Later on, Famously, this becomes the statutory basis for going a much further step, bulk collection of everybody's call detail records, creating the bulk haystack that became controversial once Edward Snowden revealed it to the public. Um, that later on gets chopped back in the USA Freedom Act in certain complicated ways. All of it's now on the chopping block. If it's not renewed, what happens is it snaps back to 1998 levels where the only uh, production orders that foreign intelligence investigators could issue would be for the you know the car rental the uh, the the storage facility rental that handful of narrow cases all the controversies about the bulk application or the querying of bulk databases under the USA Freedom Act there's relatively little controversy about the original USA Patriot Act expansion although I readily concede that's controversial with some folks uh, meanwhile the whole thing's actually mainly being held up because it's a ready and apparent and exigent vehicle for raising larger surveillance law and privacy questions right. I mean, I, I mean, I think we should we should say for the folks who are not sort of thirty six layers deep into this, the there are debates over these three slash four provisions. There are a series of I think reasonable and to my mind, and at least in two cases, um, um, strong right objections to renewing them. You know, jot and tittle, right? Like fully, but um, that's not really the debate we're having, right? That that the debate we're really having is. Um, has moved beyond the sort of nuances of these particular provisions to, as we said before, clean reauthorization of these provisions versus holding these provisions hostage to forced reforms in response to the Carter Page affair, um, 
which has nothing to do with any of these provisions. I think it's totally fair. Basically, though, I would I would expand that the hostage taking scenario. And I don't mean that pejoratively because no, it's no, perfectly no, no. common no, no, no. in Congress. It's, no, no, no. You know, I, I, I know you don't. I don't, don't, I, I don't yeah. mean that pejoratively. Um, but this, but this it is. is how, but this it is, is how the sausage yeah, gets made. Yeah, it is how the sausage gets made. It's a vehicle. It's moving, and therefore it's a chance to try to get stuff. It's uh, also, and if I may, it's also just to get on my sort of old soapbox. It also is powerful evidence of the leveraging effect of sunsets. I totally agree. That's where one of our points of uh, frequent agreement is that sunsets can. Of course, whether this is a good or bad example of what can be done with that, I know some people vary, but I, it, I but don't. it's certainly it's certain. I don't. It certainly forces congressional engagement, right. which is the larger value, um, even if we don't like the result. Exactly. So uh, I I just say that the hostage taking scenario involves a uh, coalition uh, taking the hostages, where you yes, you've got the uh, the president supporters. Uh, who are focused, th- looking at this through the lens of the Inspector General Horowitz report in the Carter Page fiasco, <laughs> and also people who are in no way sympathetic to, to President Trump, but who are very privacy-focused and are coming at this from the liberal perspective. There's there's a coalition there. It, it, it's been unclear what's going to happen. The, the 15th is the deadline. Something has to happen there. That's Sunday. Um, and yesterday there was an announcement that the House leadership had come up with an agreement and a bill, some kind. Yeah, they've got a bill. It's actually, it's actually, roughly speaking, I think the same bill that we roughly previewed a week or two ago. So we're not going to go back over that. Um, lots of privacy-focused uh, edge adjustments, I would say. You know, do- yeah, and a couple of, but but the 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 I mean, the bill I read, the Nadler, which I think with the, yeah, the Nadler bill, bill. yeah. Um, has some very specific rules about U.S. person targets vis-a-vis Carter Page, but also um, FISA surveillance that overlaps with a political campaign. Yeah. And and one of the things that I've seen folks objecting to is why should political campaigns be specially protected as compared to everybody else? That is to say, like, either we're okay with the government having the surveillance yeah. power and so it should be equally applicable to all citizens, or we're not. Right. So nor- normatively speaking, Descriptively speaking, it's obvious why this would be treated well, differently. Yeah, that's descriptively. That the, descriptively. Normatively speaking, that's an interesting question. I think there there are reasonable arguments you can make that political campaigns, like political speech, are the inner core of the most sensitive areas where um, the intersection of these government capabilities with uh, a free society become especially acute. And so you might have extra protections there. I don't have any trouble with that. Um, I think the right way to think about them, this manager's amendment or this this uh, leadership bill that's trying to get through and may or may not get through the House today, I think it'll probably fly through the Senate. Um, but you don't know. Like the politics of this are all politics up in are the weird. Air. Um, but I, I gather it may not get through the House even, but they think it might. But I think the way to think of it is it's basically trying to find the narrowest path that's not clean renewal, that really does do a number of things that speak to these various contending concerned entities, doesn't go nearly far enough to satisfy the people who are mainly focused on chopping back FISA and these surveillance capabilities, but does do something. And it's trying to it's trying to thread the needle between them. Uh, I suspect under the pressure of the 15th, they're either going to do another six month extension if they can't get this deal done. They're going to have to do that. Or else or, or they're days. just going to pass this through. I, I think, I, I mean, I... I... Maybe we just do that from now on. Just every we, every ninety days, we fight over some new bill with some more tweaks, and that just gets renewed in perpetuity. What a what a what a way to run the railroad. I mean, things are changing. Like and this is not a comment about this specifically, but things are changing so fast right now that it's really hard to yeah. to have any confidence about where we're going to be on Sunday. I think, you know, 
if there really are as many objections, I saw a, a Congresswoman Lofgren, I think, came out against this bill this morning. She, I think, is a powerful voice on the Democratic well, side. She's the one that derailed the original to, right. to get this through. And they had tried to get her on side. And apparently they failed, at least according to the Twitter machine. Yeah, well, um, yeah, we'll see. I, I don't know. I mean, I think because it, also, it could be that her her optimal position is to be, uh, to purport publicly to be against it's sort of like a Pakistan and drone strikes thing back in the day where there would be this public protest, but behind the scenes, maybe there's a, a wink and a nod, some cooperation. We'll see. Um, the proof will be in the pudding before most people have probably heard this. I think that's right. All I'll say is that I think it's entirely possible that Congress, given everything else that's going on, says, you know, this is too important a conversation to have in 45 minutes, never mind that they had much more than 45 minutes. Right, right. Um, and so we get a short, a short, 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 clean reauth. Could be. Could be. All right. So we'll have more on this uh, next week. Although next week, I'll be we, on spring break. I was going to say, we, yeah. we, if we have more on this, we'll be keeping it to ourselves. Yeah. If, if anything really demanding an emergency podcast happens, I think I'll be back in town by Friday. I won't because I'll be in D.C. getting ready for Briggs. Oh, wow. Okay. So so no show next week. We will. Uh, and, just, and the awkwardness of potentially arguing before an empty Supreme Court room. Our friend. <laughs> Look, if the NBA folks have to do it, do you see that? By the way, can LeBron, I just LeBron? Can I criticize LeBron a little bit here? So, so uh, what, what is that about? Like, as uh, as Rod Baber said on on the Horn uh, yesterday, our local sports yeah. radio show, like you know, who who is LeBron like sticking up for here? Well, so, so I have to say, I, I am I, I am um, my 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 dear friend Rakesh Kilaru is is a is a diehard Cleveland sports fan, and and so we, I used to mock him about his his LeBronism, but I am actually. And have been for a long time a, a huge fan of LeBron, both as a basketball player and as a, an ambassador for all things. I think he almost never puts a foot wrong. And he was just so wrong on this. So yeah. so just if you don't know, right, so LeBron James, you know, famous and famous sport ball player for, for, one, ball. for one of those Los Angeles sport ball teams. Um, LeBron said that he would have a real problem playing before empty arenas. Um, if that's where the NBA, you know, man, if that's what the NBA mandated. And I just have to say, like, LeBron, you know. Say it about you, so, LeBron. So he has since walked, I mean, to his credit, he has walked it back. He said that was a, you know, it was a it was a bad first reaction. Bad first take. Fair enough. We all have them. We all have them. <laughs> we but, have them all the time on this but, show. But I think this is a good segue because actually I think it's emblematic of a broader problem, which is I think there is a lot of... Um, Narcissism is too strong. I think there is a lot of uh, blind, like sort of very self-directed assessments oh, dude. of Absolutely. the impact of the spread of COVID nineteen. No, that's I, dry- and, and yeah. I don't mean, and, and I don't mean this for LeBron. Like, I mean, um, there's um, my alma mater, Amherst, right, was a little ahead of the curve. So on what today is Wednesday, on Sunday night or Monday more, Monday afternoon, Amherst announced Amherst's spring break is next week, just like ours. And Amherst announced on Monday um, that students are not allowed to come back from spring break. Um, you know, They're not just classes, or, but no, campus no, 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 no. Is campus is closed. Right. Which now we should say Amherst is a tiny, right, eighteen hundred student, small residential liberal arts college where everyone spends all day in the same space. I mean, there's one dining hall, right? I mean, it's like this is you know, this is a a perfect sort of via uh, um, uh, petri dish, if you will, right, for for mass communal spread of a virus. Um, but you know, it provoked a lot of backlash. So. The policy has exceptions, right? The the college said if that poses a hardship financially or you have nowhere to go, right? You know, 
we there are we will make exceptions. Here's the process for applying for a hardship waiver. Because like, a lot of universities are not taking care of the students that they're bringing right. off. So campus. Amherst, so Amherst, I, I I would not say Amherst is taking care of the students that they're sending home. So Amherst is allowing some. Amherst is going to make some exceptions some for some students cases. who have nowhere else to go. Yeah, well that's good. But but there's been a and um, there's been a lot of pushback from parent communities at some of the schools that have taken these measures. Um, All right. And, and I understand where the objections are about turning people out who have nowhere else to go, yeah. right? Well taken. Yeah. Where the objection is about depriving people of some experience, right? It's like, yes, I hear that, but I mean... Yeah, we gotta, we there's gotta, a reason this right, is being We got to flatten yeah. the curve. No, right. No, so look, a couple, I think it was our last show. This is Isn't all developed. Crazy? So that's all right, that's, we were talking about yeah. uh, the possibility of South by being canceled. Right. And that's a, happened. A lot of people uh, barked at me online because I had said, like, I'm not I'm not sure that that's a good idea. This is really warranted. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to say, like, yeah, I, did, I didn't fully appreciate the logic of the, the necessity of being so proactive with social distancing that you could preemptively redirect the course of the eventual spread curve in order to keep it under the arc of how many hospital beds of the right kind how much capability for intubation and other things yeah. to make sure that the eventual needs of the population can be met within the existing capabilities. Uh, I see that now. I still think there's all kinds of weird stuff going on with the South by cancellation, including the fact that in the same breath that, that they canceled it, they then said, but we really need the citizens of Austin to come out and pack these venues. It's like, well, I get it. Like, <laughs> is this really just to keep outsiders from coming here? Or isn't there some concern on the social distancing stuff but amongst it, us? It, it's back, but it's back to what you said last week, right? Which is, it's back to the square tires, um, right? right? Which right, is, exactly. which it's is, like, which is everyone, every institution and every government and every locality is struggling to strike a balance between what it believes are, you know, the best way to flatten the curve while doing whatever they can to preserve normalcy, yeah. to not destroy the local economy, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, no, there's no way to know now who's going to strike the balance correctly. We'll only right. know that in, in, in fact, hindsight. we'll never know. Well, if we, Indeed. We won't have because we can't run the counterfactual. But, but, I, but just to say, yeah. but, but I do think that belatedly and hopefully not too belatedly, the institutions are coming to their senses. Now, I, I actually think it's interesting that as, as we sit down and record this at 11 a.m. On, on Wednesday, um, our institution um, has done a ton of work behind the scenes to create contingency plans, but nothing overt. Um, and what, what, well, I mean by that is, what I mean by that is, you know, we haven't actually pulled the trigger. We haven't. No triggers have been pulled. It's, which is, it, I can I can tell you, and I, you know, I know you just said this. And I can say firsthand, there is a huge amount of care being taken. Yes, yes, clearly. To make sure it's like we're doing all we can right now, in, including while everyone's here. So, for example, Absolutely. I mean, you've you've spearheaded. You know, we are in the middle of trying to help facilitate a faculty that is not necessarily all tech savvy. Yeah. I took, um, I, friends, uh, tomorrow lunchtime, I'm going to help lead a training session for my colleagues. Zoom about about how we how you could, if it becomes necessary, if the campus closes right. for a live cl for in person class, how you can uh, work with Zoom and some of our other software tools to deliver and, and, remote and, and, teaching. And just, if I can go back to Amherst for a second, because I think I think part of what really was driving the timing of Amherst's decision was spring break. Like I actually think spring break yeah. is an enormously complicating factor here. I agree. Because it's one thing when every when you have reasonable belief that just about all of your um, students and or institution members are, are are here so that the local conditions are gonna drive the threat of spread. Yeah. Right? 
versus the wild card if everyone's coming back from wherever they went. And and you can't you can't stop them from traveling. And so I think spring break is actually the real lever that's driving a lot of institutions to to sort of both pull the trigger but also pull the trigger relative to spring break yeah. so that you know do what you're going to do for spring break make your own choices but when you come back from spring break we're not we're not we're not having mass gatherings yeah your prediction will we do, will we be teaching in front of our students or online on I, I monday think, after th- spring break i think monday i think monday after spring break will be online yeah that's probably- or, 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 sorry let me say i think it is i i would i would say with 95% confidence by friday after spring break will be online um, I think the question is whether, you know, are we going to wait for a pot for someone testing positive in Austin or a UT student testing positive, or are we going to sort of pull the trigger just because everyone else has by then? Yeah. Oh boy. This is going to be a mess. Um, which of course, the other. which of course raises the, the other issue of the, the testing problems, right. And the sort of testing capacity. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not as having, I'm spending a lot of my administrative time now, <laughs> you know, doing pre-planning for this. I'm not nearly as worried for the run of the mill courses on the testing mechanisms. Uh, oh, oh it, no, I meant testing for the virus, not testing exams. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> I meant final exams. Yeah, it's like the no, skills no, I mean, courses. Exam, I mean, exam, I mean so, you know, I, yeah. it's, it's impossible to say where we're going to be in May, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. So, who knows? Who even knows? Right. So, and no, and just, again, the, the one, one of the many prayers we all need to be uh, issuing is, let's pray it does turn out to be a seasonal yeah. uh, uh, respiratory illness in, in the specific sense that uh, once it warms up, it is much harder for it to persist on surfaces. That'll yeah. make a huge difference and at least get his breathing room this summer figuratively and literally for once the austin heat's gonna save us yeah exactly no i'm like i i wonder like if actually I, you heard it here first prediction that if that turns out to be a, a substantial effect here you're gonna have a lot of pressure uh, against air conditioning inside of buildings that may be right all i'll say is all i'll say is the 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 growth curves have not looked that different based upon climate thus far but have we had have we had actually it's an interesting question i know nothing of have we got any 80 80 degree and above median climates right now where it's been spreading i don't know i mean you can still all all my understanding of the seasonality of it all that's happening here is this is the outer layer around the virus the lipid layer which protects it and enables it to survive externally on a surface right uh maybe for hours maybe days um fails on, on many flus, for example, above 80 degrees or something like that. So it's not that you can't transmit it. You absolutely can, including by sneezing right on somebody or hacking on them uh, or touching something right after they did. But it reduces the window of uh, the attack surface, uh, if you will. Now, just one final thought on LeBron. I can't okay. resist saying, like, uh, I think he's... Lakers suck? I, I think he... Act, well, yeah. So first, let me say Lakers suck. Um, but I can't even say that with much enthusiasm because, let's face it, the Spurs are having a really bad year. What uh, I, as opposed to the Knicks. Yeah, I, I'm afraid that we're getting closer. No. Um, let me just say, though, that LeBron equally... Not on equally, but similarly stuck his foot in it on the China thing. Uh, kowtowing to China when there was an issue with the NBA. I think the NBA as a whole embarrassed itself on that issue with the Rockets um, we talked about on the show before. I think LeBron uh, spoke up in a way that was, yeah, was not in defense of a lot of uh, freedom type values, in my opinion. So I don't actually, I'm not that surprised that he might spout off and say something I also didn't agree with on. But can, on I, go, this. So can, I, can I pivot to sort of. Um, um, <clears throat> Me and and the virus, um, right? Which is I, I'm not, I, you know, just I don't mean that uh, dramatically, but like, so you know, I have the Supreme Court argument coming up, and this oh, is, yeah. and just in thinking about like how systems and institutions are reacting, right? There, I have sort of two different questions, you know, looming over me, right? One is, 
is UT going to do what some other schools have done, which is ban official faculty travel? Yeah. But um, what about the courts? Well, it's like, you know, and two, is the Supreme Court going to do anything? Um, because, you know, this, the, it's been my experience that the absolute last institution in Washington to react to anything is the Supreme Court, and that some of that's deliberate, that it's a very small-c, conservative institution, that it doesn't, you know, sort of, mm. that, you know it's, has its traditions. So, for example, you could have, like, a huge blizzard in D.C., whereas we all know the city just completely shuts down. OMB could, oh, not OMB, um, OPM could close the federal government, and the Supreme Court, you know, no. They have arguments like just get get yourself to the court. So this is a really fascinating question. Like if every other you know public institution, especially in Washington, where I think there is now concern that the virus has itself found a home, right? Um, if they're all shutting down, what's the court going to do? So I assume they're not going to fully shut down. The essential personnel who need to be physically present will attend. So, 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 the question, so, just, so are they gonna, are they going to close the public sh- gallery? Uh, I can imagine them sharply reducing it and requiring sp- social distance spacing. For you have to five people away. But, yeah, all, but, also, might, yeah. but then the other piece of this is, will that finally break the dam? Of, on, on video? on Or at least yeah. audio. I mean, this, so, see, this is why I think they won't close the gallery. They'll just limit in space. So they can so justify the, not. Absolutely. Because the, right. yeah, just, I mean, the, the Supreme Court, as I think most of you guys know, has been incredibly resistant, um, and not in any way that's partisan, just institutionally resistant yeah. to um, technology in the courtroom, including but not limited to um, Forget live video streams of the argument. Forget live audio streams. Like they don't even like same day audio of the argument. Yeah. So you know the way that you can get um, audio of each oral argument is on the Friday of each argument week, never less than two full days after the most recent argument. The court posts the audio. It, They've made exceptions in the past for high profile yeah. cases. Do you think obviously the underlying theory would be to reduce the temptation yeah. both by the litigants but also the justices? to play to the larger external audience. But they do I that think anyway. That's, uh, they do. But the question is, how much more would it be if it, as you increase the live yeah. visibility into it? I think that's a real risk. I'm kind of glad that they've drawn the line where they have, to be so honest. So I, I, let me put it this way. I would be totally fine with iterative improvements to see what happens. So, you know, if the it seems to me that the next step down the chain is same-day audio. Um, not live, just same day. Like, a, yeah. you know, by four o'clock in the afternoon, post the audio of that day's argument. So they cl- I, I'd, I'd be happy for them to bring it closer. I think that their theory of not doing same day is to avoid the immediate news cycle so that so that the evening clips is someone offering one-line zingers. I, I understand that. I just think that to a large extent that's already happening in Supreme Court arguments and in any of I mean, so, so just to take a case in point, at the... Um, at the CFPB argument a couple of weeks ago, Justice, or I last, I, I've lost track of yeah, the days. Sometimes. It's impossible to tell when the days are. Um, so Justice Gorsuch and Paul Clement, who was arguing as the court-appointed amicus in defense of the CFPB. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was an right? ugly They ugly got into a little exchange. tiff. Yeah. And that, that exchange, weird. but it was also all over the media in half an hour. Like, yeah. would it have been that different if it came with audio as opposed to just a, yeah. you know, transcript? Cause, yeah, because I think just as a picture's worth a thousand yeah. words, the, the actual audio, the, the verisimilitude, tone. the tone, I think it would have helped the story. It would, it would help the story. It would be clickbaity, and it would exacerbate the... The, the perception of this is just another place where we have the horse race and the battle of narratives yeah. and who's, who's, who's owning the other side. I, not, I, and so I, I like it that it's forced into a distilled, uh, one-step-removed uh, 
aspect. I guess what I would say is I don't disagree that those are concerns. Yeah. I just think that there are concerns militating in the other direction, uh, just uh, many of which have to do with how inaccessible the court is to the public. So, yes, there's a public gallery, but it's actually really, really hard to actually get into the yeah. public gallery. It's become increasingly difficult to actually even get into the Supreme Court bar section because, you know, there's been some line standing issues, even though the court has yeah. apparently adopted a policy that you can't pay line standards. In they the should Supreme talk court to line. Franklin's about how to police this. I, I mean, you know. What the Supreme Court has what the Supreme Court has to learn from Franklin Barbecue that would be yeah, here. Hold on, I'm writing that down. Although it doesn't have this podcast. Well, I guess we right. we haven't always had the, yeah, the yeah. yes yes episode title. What the Supreme Court has to learn from can Franklin we do Scotus Barbecue. to shrink it? Yeah, what Scotus, Scotus has can, to learn from Franklin. What Barbecue. Scotus can learn from Franklin Barbecue. There, that's a good episode title. Yeah, uh, but I use this not just because I'm selfish and self involved, but I use this to sort of illustrate <laughs> that. Everywhere across the country, indeed across the world, these com- these are the you know this many 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 people are in this space of trying to figure out how to react to this in a way that is reasonable, right? But that is accommodating, but that is also sort of as minimally disruptive as possible, yep. given that we're going to have massive disruptions. Yep, yep. I'm with you. All right, um, so let's just kind of lightning around a, a few additional things. Um, today's the day that the Cyber Solarium Commission has at last released its massive report after basically a year's worth of oh, endless uh, sessions and workshops and interviews and papers they commissioned this whole deal. Um, I have not had the chance to read this whole thing yet. I what? Think, well, it's 180-something pages, and it and, dropped and, 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 and you don't, you while wanna, I was teaching earlier. And you don't want to just sort of you know assume it says certain things you were assuming already? Exactly. Well, I think there's probably some of that. Um, I can't wait to dig into it. Um, at Lawfare, we're going to run, you know, a dozen or more uh, sort of bullet point or rifle shot posts on different aspects of it. And that'll start rolling out today. Um, people both from within the Solarium process and then people reacting to the report. Uh, so be be looking there and we'll probably have more to say about this post spring break once we resume because there will be some at least a few interesting legal aspects. In the meantime, uh, the general counsel of DOD, uh, Paul Ney. Um, he get, he's actually been very active recently, clearly a, a conscious decision to start uh, appearing publicly to, to offer at least the DOD perspective, the official DOD perspective on certain legal issues. So when I was at the Cybercom Legal Conference, um, I guess this is a, a week and a half ago now. I'm telling he, you, it's hard to keep track. It is really hard to keep track. He gave a talk on uh, DOD's sort of collective position on the legality or the legal frameworks internationally and domestically on cyber operations that the military conducts. It's very interesting stuff. I have a post at Lawfare. I'm not gonna go into all the details of it there. I'll just say this. Um, he, I think, spoke in a not too surprising way articulating the US position on a lot of the, the key international law issues. All the domestic law stuff is exactly what you would expect if you follow the domestic law in this area, at least I would argue. Um, the international law stuff, takes on topics such as this very important and sort of esoteric but important question um, beyond the UN Charter's prohibition on the use of force and beyond the further recognized rule of international law that you cannot coercively intervene in the affairs of another state, is there a broader additional customary concept that's really a rule of sovereignty? That is, it's not coercive intervention, it's definitely not armed, armed attack or use of force, but it's an infringement of sovereignty. At what point does that constitute not just a, a, an undergirding principle, but an actual rule, the violation of which would be an internationally wrongful act and could trigger countermeasures? 
And that's something where there's sharp international disagreement. Uh, the UK has publicly taken the position back in 2018 that there is no such rule, that it's a, it's an, it's a key principle, but it's not actually a rule. Um, the language in this speech, I really parsed it closely and came away with the view that there's still some lingering tensions around this surrounding the idea that there may be certain fact patterns where some version of this and certain outposts for that concept might be relevant, but that in general, DOD at least is, is, is gravitating to the position, and I think this is consistent over time, uh, that there is no such rule as a general proposition. They certainly say that as a per se matter, military operations in cyberspace, military hacking, if you will, is not per se a violation of international law. And they offer the explicit analogy to espionage, which I think is spot on. Um, I think internet, whether you want to say that espionage is an exception to a general rule of sovereignty, or you want to say that there is no general rule, espionage, I do not think can credibly be described as a violation of international law. There's no way. The state practice is so overwhelmingly to the contrary. Um, I think military cyber operations as an abstract matter are in that same bucket. And that you've got to be careful from that point as you talk about particular applications. So anyways, that's all pretty interesting. There's also a speech which will be published any minute now over at Lawfare. Uh, Eric Jensen and I are, are publishing uh, the text of the remarks uh, Paul gave in a speech at BYU um, about a week ago, I guess Wednesday last week, talking about the Soleimani strike mm. and, and setting forth the particular DOD view of the international and domestic law framework. And actually, let me pull you in on this. So I'll describe to you my sense of uh, of what Paul says about the domestic law framework. I'll leave aside the international law stuff. The speech basically has three parts. The first part sets out the factual predicates. And all of this is far more detailed than we've seen in any prior U.S. government uh, statement. So this is a, I would say this is the cutting edge explanation. Um, the factual account heavily emphasizes what I would have expected, which is to say it heavily emphasizes um, the the sequence of actual recent violent attacks Soleimani had directed and the, the Quds Force was sponsoring and directing in Iraq, targeting U.S. and allied forces there. So it frames it not as anticipatory self-defense or imminent self-defense. It frames it as responding to actual recent attacks that are ongoing, uh, which is the frame that I had been suggesting I thought was probably the most compelling frame. I take a lot of heat for that. A lot of people um, really sort of criticize that online. But this is, in fact, it turns out to be at least the Pentagon view of it, which doesn't surprise me at all. Um, turning- better, better than the HR McMaster view that, you know, international law is irrelevant. Oh, did, is McMaster? He said that at a debate at Stanford last week. Uh, okay. Well, that's Anyways, unfortunate. That's, that's, yeah. You know, yeah I, I wonder if he would have said that to his SJA when he was, you know, actually well, of course not. working these issues. I, I don't, you know, that's, that sounds like a hyperbolic statement from him. Probably not exactly what he fully actually thinks, but he sure shouldn't say it. Anyways, um, on, uh, the, the second part of the speech goes into international law details, um, it, as you might imagine, it's basically a uh, Article 51 type claim based on that factual predicate. And then interestingly, you would think turning to the domestic law scenario, Steve, wouldn't you expect that he would then say um, national self-defense, prize cases, the sort of the, the domestic analog to explain how it is that this strike might have been lawful without an express congressional authorization? I'd argued that this looks like a national self-defense type claim. May or may not be factually warranted, but that's the that's the line of argument that makes the most sense here. It's not what he argues. It's fascinating. He sets up the uh, Syria-Libya style national interest. This is isolated 
pinprick doesn't rise to the level of war. Therefore, you don't get to the separation of powers question. I, I'm sort of astonished by that. Right. Uh, because you don't, A, you don't need to go there. And B, I don't think that's right that that using an, uh, military power to kill the uh, the top general of the Iranians in a context where your whole predicate is there's basically a shadow armed conflict already underway to argue that this is akin to the air campaign in Libya or the one-offs against Assad where there's relatively little escalation risk and no U.S. ground, uh, no endangerment of U.S. troops. I think this is a good illustration of where that's actually not the case. In fact, there is a lot of escalation, or there was a vast amount of escalation risk. The whole world was concerned that that was, in fact, where this was going to lead. The speech emphasizes that in the end, it didn't escalate. It wasn't escalatory. I don't think you're allowed to judge it that way mm-hmm. because you don't get the benefit of hindsight when right. you're making the call. Right. It has to be analyzed ex ante. This seems like exactly the sort of situation where it's reasonable to expect that U.S. troops are in harm's way, that this could escalate out of control, and that it does rise to the level where you need to answer the war powers question. Now, I think, and, and I think there's a good answer. As I said, I think national self-defense is an adequate answer. And by the way, the speech goes on to say that anyways, the 2002 AUMF applies. So that's an adequate answer too. Uh, I found it very curious. Uh, it seems like they chose the hardest way to go yep. on the constitutional dimension and took a position that now, now sits out there as a precedent about how much uh, risk of escalation is okay, what degree of risk to U.S. forces on the ground is okay, to still assert from the executive branch side that it's not really at the point where you got to ask the war question. I think it's very unfortunate, in fact. Yeah. I think you'd be better off in terms of controlling these sorts of uh, resorts to force in a way that's sufficiently capacious to let the executive branch do what it needs to do, what it truly needs to do, without running riot and running roughshod over the congressional responsibilities here to go the national self-defense route. Right. All right. So uh, digression ended. Can I do can I do two quick hits before we do, do Picard? Yeah. I, know, I know you want to talk about last week's episode of yeah. Picard. And actually, I'm... I know. Super pressed for time. So, so let's, I can't let's, be late to this lunch, friends. It's my it's me and my wife's anniversary. Going to a nice lunch. Happy I, anniversary! I'm going to have to leave here very shortly. How many? I got four minutes. Number? No, how many anniversary? How many? Oh, twentieth. Oh. Uh, so we. Conveni- oh, it's a big one. Well, we conveniently got married in the year 2000, so that the math is really easy for me. I just um, need to remember what year this is. So I just want to flag two pretty big court rulings um, that you know, in a normal time, would actually probably have been episodes unto themselves, but because it's not normal, they're going to get about 30 seconds each. Um, so the first was uh, last Thursday when the appeals chamber of the ICC, the International oh, Criminal yeah. Court, wow, that's um, a big one, right? Rule that the uh, inquiry into war crimes in Afghanistan, including Bobby, war crimes by U.S. forces, um, can proceed, reversing the trial chamber's decision. Oh boy! Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a mystery that the U.S. Uh, doesn't take too kindly to the ICC. But from the perspective of international human rights and accountability, this is actually, I think, seen as a really positive, or at least an important and significant step. Um, it's. I, I'll just say I mean, this is going to be intensely controversial. Uh, yeah, well, no kidding. And indeed, I think it would have been much more noteworthy if we weren't deluged with noteworthy news. Um, speaking of things that would have gotten a lot more attention at a different point in time, um, there was also the ruling on Friday, or um, yeah, Friday, um, from Judge Collier in the D.C. District Court um, in a Guantanamo habeas case um, in al Qatani Bobby about why al Qatani is entitled to be examined by a, quote, mixed medical commission 
under Army Regulation 190-8, oh, yeah. and that if he actually meets the criteria for disability, for permanent disability under the Army Regulation, he's actually entitled to mandatory repatriation to his home country of Saudi Arabia. Um, that may sound not that controversial, but this is actually the first time that a Guantanamo detainee has successfully argued that he's entitled to an MMC, a mixed medical commission. And one of the things that Judge Collier holds in the process of reaching this conclusion is that the government is bound, that AR 190-8, the armed regulation, is enforceable and habeas. Yeah, that, so my first reaction to this is, I think that as a general proposition, it's perfectly fine and reasonable from the policy perspective. If you have somebody who's who's a foreign national in the medical conditions point that direction, you certainly ought to go ahead and do that if you can. That, 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 I think it's a reasonable outcome. The idea that it's judicially enforceable in habeas is interesting to um, to uh, compel the arm to compel compliance with Reg 190-8. I find I find that very surprising, um, uh, and I'm not entirely you, you sure what the theory say- is. It like an Administrative Procedures Act theory because I certainly don't think that 190-8 by its own terms in any way points to that conclusion. No, no, I think the argument is that the government has taken other steps to make AR 190-8 positive law. I mean, this is this is why I... But which, that's what I'm wondering. So, like, what, I mean, what are those This is steps? why I think we need more... I mean, I don't want to... I don't yeah, want to we need to dig this. into that one. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, if, if we... Ha- I mean, the chances that this is still something we're going to have time to talk about in two weeks are slim. But right. for the... You know, it's a big deal. It is, I think, at least not a self-evidently obvious deal, although I suspect that when we're done, I'm going to think it's right and you're going to not be convinced. Probably, right, um, right. It also, I think, is an appealable deal. Um, yeah. And so yeah. we could actually have a pretty significant Guantanamo habeas appeal to the D.C. Circuit. Wouldn't that be fun? Everything old is new again. Yeah. And, that, and, and, of course, the larger stakes are there's a lot else in 190-8. Yeah. And so if, if why would one part of it be enforceable, not the other? Exactly. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Quick uh, you want to talk about Picard, Picard before you go to okay, your anniversary? tune out if you don't want the Picard update. All right. Glad you're still with us. Hello. That last episode was awesome. I, I like enjoyed it. that. I, I had the warm feelies um, having, having Riker and Troy back um, and – Depicting them in this bittersweet context. Very bittersweet. They've got these kids, and well, one, well, well, they had these kids, had and these one kids. of them died. And they died, and died because there were no more positronic brains. Yeah. No, okay. So that part, I actually <laughs> thought I was like, dude, that that's like way too much like plot convenience. Yes. Like, yes. oh, what a, what a remarkable yes. coincidence! If only the synths yes. were available, yes. then our son could live. But the but the come the, on, just the, have it, just be a regular tragedy. But not the, that. the burnt tomato cancel red alert. That was uh, yeah, that was pretty awesome. I, I I really liked getting the dynamic back. It it felt like it, that was fan servicey. Maybe the whole point is to service the fans. But here. also, it was it was it was a much more. I mean, I think true to what would be true of any mother who lost a child, right? It was a much more. Like, you know, Deanna Troy was a much more. I think complicated. Um, yeah, reflective. It was well acted. I thought. Deep, I thought she yeah. she really. Uh, yeah. There was a lot going on with things she wasn't saying that she was yes. acting that were yes. impressive like, and noticeable. It, it, it was depth that I wish they had given more to her of in you know the in the series. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, maybe she's a better actress now. I don't know, but she was really good in that episode. We also, on, I mean, in context, we, we don't often comment on the quality of the acting. Um, uh, what else can we say about poor, just, Hugh, was, poor Hugh? But that's why I wanted to watch. I mean, th- this is what I wanted from Picard. I wanted yeah. the warm fuzzies. Yeah, and they delivered it big time yes. there. Even if it was a lot of fan service, it was it was the fan service I wanted. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that was very satisfying. 
Uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Yeah. So we'll watch uh, Westworld. Everybody. Westworld. Uh, okay. NSL no, podcast. I'm just, I'm just telling you now, everybody, you know, we are going to, our our frivolity for a while now. Westworld. Is going to be Westworld with maybe some, some NCAA tournament mixed in. Yeah, exactly. We can't limit ourselves. But I will just say one last thing about the NCAA tournament just to tie everything together so you can, and then kick you out to go to lunch. Um, the, I don't think anyone noticed over the weekend that in the regional rounds of the NCAA Division three basketball tournaments, the NCAA banned spectators. Yeah, no, no. I've heard, and also in Ohio, I believe the governor the, said well, that. But, they, so, so there's there's the state right yeah. there. There's the mandated. There there are the sports teams that have to comply with local regulations, and then there are the sports teams that are doing it to themselves. And right. I think the NCAA. That was a test run. So I think I think that it'll be very interesting to watch in all these contexts. Yes. What do the what do they do to make the viewing experience more palatable? Do they tighten the camera angles to not show the empty seats? Do they pipe in crowd noise? I, I, you'd have to do it like in an even way, but it'd be great. Is it like, do we get the laugh track to, to cue are the, us? What's are, are the guys on the bench now going to have a whole obligation to be much louder? I mean, you're going to hear everything. You're going to hear some words too. Y'all. You're going to hear the coaches. Well, it, actually, they should lean into this. Mic everybody up. They'll have to do it a little bit on delay so they can beef everything out. That might be right. Maybe, uh, maybe the stadium PA has got to play music the whole time. But the other thing is, and they play this in these cavernous, like 20,000 yeah. seat, like, you know, it's going to be even crazier. At those. Like, now you might as well just play these games in high school gym. You know what? If they, if they could set it up, that'd be awesome if they actually moved them into tiny little yeah. uh, environments. But All right. Won't. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm SF underscore Vladek. We're at NSL Podcast. Happy anniversary, Bobby and Heather. Thank you. Wash your hands. Stay safe out there. Adios. Wash your hands. See you later. Tell Heather I say uh, happy anniversary. Will do.